For those of you who are new here, I'm Chris Dirks, I'm one of the associate pastors, and I'm starting a new series this weekend. Uh, this series will take me a little bit of time to get through because it'll be a little broken up. I'm preaching this weekend and next weekend, and then Pastor Ray's up for a couple of weekends, and then I'm going to come back to it uh, again in the middle of May. It's hard to believe that we're already coming to the end of April. Um, but the series I want to start today is, uh, is called The Sovereignty of God, and some of you might be wondering, um, I mean, haven't you talked about the sovereignty of God a little bit in the last few years? And, and yes, we've touched on this in a couple of different messages. Uh, three years ago in the Knowing God series, we looked at uh, seven or I think it was seven traits of God. And in one of the messages in that series, we looked at the sovereignty of God. And then uh, last fall in the uh, Hope series, I did a message also on the sovereignty of God in that series. So we've kind of touched on the sovereignty of God a couple of times in the last uh, few years, but we've never done a a whole series where we just kind of laid out fully the doctrine of the sovereignty of God. And uh, so that's what I want to do in this this series, because the sovereignty of God is, first of all, it's a big topic, but it's also a a hugely important topic. And And it touches in uh, many areas of life and theology, and what you think about the sovereignty of God is going to hugely impact the way you live, the way you think about God, and the way you pray. I mean, it, would just, it just massively impacts it. So, um, and there's lots of confusion, lots of sloppy thinking. In fact, even as I've been getting ready for this series, I've seen uh, in my own theology and thinking uh, lots of just sloppy thinking in, in very, uh, various areas. And of course, then too, there is a lot of just wrong teaching about the sovereignty of God as well. Uh, for example, uh, many teachers today, when they talk about the sovereignty of God, they talk about the sovereignty of God, uh, when they talk about it, they're talking about the fact that they think that God predetermines everything that's going to happen. And so many people today, the moment they hear sovereignty of God, they think of uh, God predetermining events that, and all sort of stuff. And so in this series, we'll look at, I mean, is that true? Do, if God is sovereign, does that mean he's predetermining things that are going to happen in the earth? And if that is true, then what would be the point of praying? Uh, why, why pray if God has already decided sovereignly what he's going to do, right? So those are some things we need to look at in this series. Uh, we also want to talk about the, I want to talk about the devil. That won't happen uh, very much today yet, but later in this series we're going to talk about the devil um, because there's lots of confused thinking about the devil. Uh, and again, and, and with myself as well, I found much sloppy thinking about the devil as I've been getting ready for this. But many times we as Christians will believe opposite things about the devil at the same time. For example, uh, you know, you'll hear, hear a few Christians will be talking about spiritual warfare or something like that in a conversation, and they'll talk in there about how the devil is ruling over the kingdoms of the earth. And then those same people, they might have a conversation a week later where they're talking about the sovereignty of God, and they'll talk about how God is ruling over the earth. And so the question is, which is it? Is the devil ruling over the earth, or is God ruling over the earth, right? And so those are some things we want to talk about, and of course, where do we as human beings fit into all of this? So the sovereignty of God, huge topic. Uh, what is God in charge of? What is the devil in charge of? Where do we human beings come in? What does this mean for prayer and all that sort of stuff? That's what this series is going to be about. So uh, bow your heads with me, close your eyes, and then we will begin. Heavenly Father, Lord Jesus, I just want to speak truthfully about you this, this morning. I want uh, these messages to be pleasing to you, and I want us to grow as a church in the fear of the Lord and in godliness. And I pray that this message in this whole series would help us to grow in those things, the fear of the Lord and in godliness. In Jesus' name I pray, uh, amen. Um, I want to start this series by, we're gonna have to, you're going to have to put your thinking caps on here for a few minutes, because uh, I want to start this series off by sh- giving you the definition of what sovereignty is, showing you biblically uh, what sovereignty means. Because uh, like I alluded to just a couple minutes ago, 
a lot of times these days, when people talk about the sovereignty of God, it starts a philosophical dis- discussion. And you often hear people arguing, is God sovereign or do people have free will? And so oftentimes the sovereignty of God and this whole philosophical discussion about free will and things being predetermined, those things are all tied together. And so a lot of people, when they hear sovereignty of God, they think uh, complicated philosophical discussion. And the reason we think of a complicated philosophical discussion whenever we hear sovereignty of God is because over the last couple of hundred years, for various historical reasons that I won't get into right now, but uh, we have come to have a wrong definition of Christians of sovereignty. When you actually see what the, what the Bible means by the word sovereignty, you're going to be blown away by how simple this subject really is. And it's not philosophical pie in the sky. It's very real world. Okay? And, uh, and so that's what I want to do here at the beginning. So we're going to have to look a little bit in the original languages for just a bit, but stick with me. It's worth it. Once we have a foundation, once we know what the Bible means by the word sovereignty, uh, you know, a, I think a light bulb is going to go on in your heads, and you're going to see what this, this message series is really all about. Um, and so the first thing you need to know is, uh, as I was getting ready for the series, I thought, I would have guessed, you know, I mean, sovereignty is such a big subject. It's got to be in the Bible you know, dozens of times for sure, maybe a hundred times, or, but lots of times. I think many of us, if I asked you to guess, would be like me. You would think, well, the word sovereignty must be all over the scripture. And uh, in actual fact, the opposite is true. The word sovereignty hardly ever appears in the Bible. Um, in fact, if we take the two most, you know, what kind of widely considered to be the two most accurate word-for-word translations in the English would be the... the uh, the ESV and the NASB, kind of considered to be the most accurate word-for-word ones. Uh, if you take the ESV and the NASB and you put together all the passages where they use the word sovereignty or sovereign, I just consider them one word, just two different forms. But if you take together all the passages where the word sovereignty appears in those two translations, there's a grand total of 10 passages in the entire Bible, Old and New Testament, where the word sovereignty appears. Okay? So it's not actually in the Bible very much. Um, and so, uh, but what I want to do now is I want to just show you some of those passages, and I want to show you what sovereignty means biblically, okay? And so I want to start by, let's go to Psalm 103, verse 19. And in Psalm, 10, Psalm 103, verse 19, we read this, the Lord has established his throne in the heavens, and his sovereignty rules over all, okay? So here is one of the 10 passages in the English Bible where the word sovereignty appears. And uh, in this passage, the word sovereignty is translated from the Hebrew word uh, malkuth. Okay? So again, just thinking cast for just a few minutes here. Uh, this is going to pay off. This whole series is going to get a lot easier for you and a lot clearer when you see what this is. Okay? It comes from the Hebrew word malkuth. Now, sovereignty appears 10 times in the English Bible, but the word here malkuth is actually a very common Hebrew word. It appears 91 times in the Old Testament. And it means one thing. It means kingdom. That's it. It's not a complicated word. It's not a philosophical word. It has nothing to do with free will or anything like that. The word malkuth means one thing. It means kingdom. Now, depending on where it is in a sentence or grammar, it sometimes gets translated kingdom or reign or royal, uh, or as in this case, very rarely, it gets translated in the NASB as sovereignty, but it means kingdom, okay? So when you see the word sovereignty here in Psalm 103 verse 19, you could actually just read it as, and his kingdom rules over all. That actually makes it simpler for a lot of us, I think, because we've attached so many philosophical ideas to the word sovereignty. It just means kingdom. And in fact, many English translations just translate it kingdom. For example, uh, the NIV does, the Lord has established his throne in heaven, in heaven, and his kingdom rules over all, okay? 
So in this passage, sovereignty just equals kingdom. Okay, not a big philosophical discussion about free will. It just means kingdom. Okay, now what I want to do is I'm going to put up a chart and I'm going to show you all 10 passages in the Bible where the word sovereignty or sovereign appears, okay, in the ESV and NASB uh, translations. And what you're going to see is in the Old Testament, there are three words, different words, which gets, get translated as sovereignty in the Old Testament, uh, Malkuth, Mamlaka, and Malku. That sounds like a fun uh, language to, uh, to speak, but uh, lots of ums in there. But uh, what you'll see is in all three cases, and I've got the passages there. You can write all this down. You can, you can look it up. You can check me out on this one. But in all three cases, the words that get translated sovereignty in the Old Testament, they all mean the exact same thing. I just showed you in Psalm 103 verse 19 that the word sovereignty literally just means kingdom. You could just put kingdom in instead of sovereignty, and that's exactly what it means. And now what I'm showing you is in all the other cases in the Old Testament, it's the same thing. In every case in the Old Testament where the word sovereignty is used, you could just put in kingdom, reign, or royal, or domain, or whatever. That's just what it means. Okay? And if we go to the New Testament, we find the same thing. The New Testament wasn't re- written in, uh, in Hebrew, obviously. It was written in Greek. In uh, the New Testament, in the English Bible, uh, the word sovereignty appears three times. Twice, Acts and Revelation, it comes from the Greek word despotes, which just means master. That's where we get our word uh, despot from. And in 1 Timothy 6, verse 15, the word sovereign is translated from the Greek word dynasties, which just means king or prince. So in all those cases, master, king, prince, the word sovereignty or sovereign just means king. Okay? So now what I've put together for you here is actually something very simple. In every single case in the entire Bible where the word sovereignty or sovereign appears, it just means one thing, king or kingdom. That's all it means. Anywhere in the Bible you encounter the word sovereign or sovereignty, you can just plug king or kingdom straight in there. That's what it means, okay? So now you can see why I say that this whole discussion, we've made the sovereignty of God into this complicated philosophical discussion, and the moment you bring it up in many circles in the West, right away it's like the sovereignty of God or free will. Well, when you see what sovereignty actually means in the Bible, you see that that question makes no sense. Because what you're asking is, is God king or do we have free will? Uh, yes. I mean, whether or not God is king or not doesn't have anything to do with whether I have free will or not. I mean, imagine if, uh, you know, you have a friend from, from the States, an American comes up to your house for dinner, and he sits down and he says, I've got an a important question I've been wanting to ask you for a long time. Is Mr. Stephen Harper your prime minister or do you Canadians have free will? Come again. Is Mr. Stephen Harper your prime minister, or do Canadians have free will? And you would say, what? Yes. I mean, the fact that Mr. Harper is our prime minister has nothing to do with a philosophical discussion of whether we have free will. He is in charge. I mean, I know a prime minister isn't exactly the same as a king, but Mr. Stephen Harper and his party, they make laws and rules, but then it's my choice whether I'm going to obey them or not. And if I disobey them, the authorities under Mr. Harper are going to punish me. And it's the same with God. Is God a king? Yes. And do we have free will underneath his kingship? Yes. And at the end of time, he will come back in his sovereignty because he's king, and he will judge us, and he will either punish us according to whether we obeyed or not, or he will reward us according to if we obeyed him or not. Okay? And so that's the sovereignty of God. It's not a philosophical question. It's when, with this whole series now, when we're talking about the sovereignty of God, what we are talking about is the kingness and the kingdom of God. That's what we're talking about. 
God is a king and he has a kingdom. Sovereignty equals king and kingdom. That's the biblical definition. And that's what this whole series is about. The fact that God is a king and the fact that he has a kingdom. All right? So now in the rest, the, the question now for the rest of this message today and then tomorrow in the, in the rest of this series is, what is God king over? What is God king over? That's the whole question of the sovereignty of God. It's not a philosophical question. It's a real question. What is God king over? What does he own? What does his kingdom consist of? What does he control? What does he not control? That's the question of the sovereignty of God. And what you're going to find as we go through this series, and I have been stunned again as I've been studying this over the past while, is the Bible teaches a very high view of the sovereignty of God. Much higher than what most of us in the Western church are raised in. Uh, specifically, I would say even in this area in particular, uh, our, our strain of Christianity here in Steinmechan area is very low on the sovereignty of God. When we look in the scripture, when you begin to see, you're going to see there's hundreds of verses in here. We won't get through all of them, obviously, in this series, but there are hundreds of verses in the Bible about the sovereignty of God, and the Bible teaches an extremely high view of the sovereignty of God. He is a very powerful king, and he is very much involved in the world around us. And uh, as we see that, uh, I think we're going to be blown away by the fact that he's a real king and he's really doing, he's extremely powerful. He's doing things in the world today. And uh, I think the fact that we've lost sight of the sovereignty of God is a big part of the reason why we've lost much of the fear of God in the Western church. And our worship has become stunted. Many of our prayers are very self-centered. Many people in the West today, God is nothing more than just, he just, he helps us to, be a, to live a successful life. We just need, we just pray to Jesus every once in a while to make us a little more successful in business, make us a little more successful in our marriage, make us a little more successful in our finances. We just think God is this, he's Mr. Uh, self-help, help us to be a little more successful. And we've lost sight of the fact that God is king of the universe. And so we've lost our fear of the Lord, which is desperately needed. Our worship has become stunted and many of our prayers and our devotional uh, life is very self-centered. And I hope that through this series, we're going to restore uh, some of that through talking about the, 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 some of the fear of the Lord and some of those things through talking about God's sovereignty. Okay, so where do we start a discussion about the sovereignty of God? And uh, I've talked about what I'm going to talk about next quite a bit in the last few months. So I'm not going to spend much time on this first point, but we have to start by answering the where question. Um, God is a real king and he rules from a real throne. And, and the sovereignty of God, again, isn't some abstract philosophical discussion. We're talking about a real king. So we have to start with where is he? And uh, God is not, as I've repeated a number of times the last few months, God is not just some abstract puff of air spirit who's in everything. Sometimes I hear Christians, we start talking about how God is everywhere and then it gets into this weird thing of God is in the carpet and he's in the light bulb and he's everywhere. He's just everywhere, okay? And that is actually not a biblical idea. That is a new age, pantheistic, eastern religion idea that God is just sort of everywhere in everything, okay? Now, again, I get, obviously, God is not restricted or limited by space. I mean, he, can, he sees all things at once. He sees everywhere in his creation. He can work anywhere in his creation at any moment, at multiple places at once. Obviously, he's not limited by physical space like we are. But this idea that he's just a puff of air in everything isn't in the Bible. Um, the Bible is very clear. The Lord is in his holy temple. So the Bible says he is somewhere. He's not limited by physical space the way we are. 
and he can see everything and he can work everywhere and all this sort of stuff, but he is somewhere. He is in his holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. So he's a real king sitting on a real throne. We're talking about the sovereignty of God. Again, this is not an abstract philosophical discussion. We're having a discussion about a real king. A real being with a real throne with real power. The Lord's throne is in heaven. His eyes see. His eyelids test the children of men. The Lord tests the righteous, but his soul hates the wicked and the one who loves violence. Let him rain coals on the wicked. Fire and sulfur and a scorching wind shall be the portion of their cup. And I want you to notice here that, again, God is not just in, in everything all around us. And he's not just passively watching the earth. He's sitting on his throne, real person, real place real power, and he is testing and judging and doing things on the earth. He's testing the righteous, but he is judging the wicked. Already he is doing these things, very real world stuff. In fact, again, the scripture, again, he's a real king, real throne. This is the sovereignty of God. The scriptures are even very clear that he actually has real, a real government, and uh, I don't have time to develop all this in this message here right now, and we're going to talk about this later in this series, But the Old Testament is actually very clear that God has a council, a governing council of of powerful angelic beings. We're going to come across them in a story later, so I'm just introducing it now. But he's a real king with a real throne, with a real government. He actually has a council of powerful angelic beings known as watchers or sometimes sons of God or the holy ones. And they actually have meetings where they discuss things on the earth. And then they, they come to agreement about something, and then they do something, and, and that sort of thing. So real king, real government, real throne, this is the sovereignty of God, okay? Psalm 103, verse 19, if we go back there again, the Lord has established his throne in the heavens, and his kingdom, a real kingdom, a real king, a real government, a real throne, his kingdom rules over all. Now, there's something I want you to notice in this passage here, his kingdom rules over all. He is already ruling right now. And this is something where, as Christians, we get, there's confusion. I talked before about sloppy thought. And I've seen so much of it, even in my own thinking, as I've been getting ready for this message series. But we have sloppy thought. We think often of God as he's going to come to earth and rule in the future. And it is true. In the future, God is going, Jesus is going to come to earth. And and right now, his throne is in heaven and we can't see it. Um, But in the future, Jesus is going to come back to earth and he's going to set up his throne physically on the earth and physically live among us. That's going to be an amazing day. Uh, He's also going to get rid of the wicked and he's going to get rid of sin off the earth and we're going to get our resurrected bodies. And and we look forward to that day. In the future, that wonderful day is coming. But where, where, where our thinking is wrong is we start to think of that as the day when God's going to start ruling. That's false. The Bible is very clear in dozens and dozens of places. When Jesus comes back to earth, that's not when God starts to rule. He is already ruling right now. He is already king over all of the earth right now. In fact, the Bible tells us that there has never been a time in history at any second of any moment when God has not been king. And sometimes again, and we're going to come back to the devil over and over again in this series, but uh, sometimes in in our thinking, we have this idea that when Adam and Eve sinned, Satan somehow became king of the world. And what you're going to see in Scripture over and over again is Satan is not the king of the world. God did not lose kingship somehow magically when Adam and Eve sinned. He is still king today. I just want to show you three passages. I could show you dozens. But then I want to show you uh, an amazing story about God's sovereignty in Daniel chapter 4. Let me just show you three quick passages here. David praising God. He says this, Your kingdom 
is an everlasting kingdom, and your dominion, that's where you're in charge of, your dominion endures throughout all generations. There has never been a generation when God was not king over the entire universe. Never. He's never lost that. He is king right now, real throne, real government, making real decisions. He's in charge right now. Now, of course, that already in your mind probably raises some questions about some of the evil things that happen in the world, but some of those things we'll have to unravel as the series goes on. 2 Kings chapter 19, verse 15, And Hezekiah prayed before the Lord and said, O Lord, the God of Israel, enthroned, again, notice it's a real throne, real king, enthroned above the cherubim, you are the God, you alone, of all the kingdoms of the earth, you have made heaven and earth. Okay, so God is not just king of heaven. We would all agree with that, no problem. Oh yeah, he's certainly he's king of heaven. Uh, God is not just king of the church. We would all agree with that. Oh yeah, God is king of the church. And the Bible says over and over again, he's king over all the nations right now. Right now, he is king over Canada. And he's king over the, the continents, Africa, Asia, China. I mean, you just name it. He's king over all the nations right now. In fact, uh, Jeremiah 10, verses 6 to 7 says this. There is none like you, O Lord. You are great, and your name is great in might. Who would not fear you, O king of the nations? That's a title that the prophet gives to God. You are king of the nations. For this is your due. For among all the wise ones of the nations and in all the kingdoms, there is none like you. So now something you might be just scratching your heads a bit. Okay. Well, if God, if God is king of the nations and he's in charge of the universe and he's king over all the stuff right now, but we see all this wicked stuff happening and bad stuff happening, which clearly we know God doesn't want, well, what does it all mean? What does it mean to say God is in charge, but all these things are happening? Uh, what does it mean to say God is king um, when people are doing stuff he doesn't want, right? And so you might be tempted to think, okay, I get it. God must be like a, a, a figurehead king, okay? And technically, I get it, Chris. God is king right now, and he's in charge, but, it, but in the future, that's when he's really going to be in charge. Right now, technically, he's in charge in the future. He, right now, he's more like the queen of England, right? Uh, you know, her, money's, her face is on all of our money, and uh, we call her queen, but in reality, she has no power over our lives to make laws or anything like that. So you might think, is, is God just a figurehead uh, above the universe? Well, uh, the Bible is very clear that he is much more than a figurehead. And so to help you see this, I'm going to bring you, we're going to look at Daniel chapter 4. And uh, you're just going to have to be patient. There are so many scriptures, it's hard to even know where to start. But we're going to look at a, a, a famous story, one of my favorite uh, in the Bible for this week. I have new favorites every week. Um, but, uh, but Daniel 4, amazing story. So here's a little background to Daniel 4. And then we'll look at the fact that God is not a figurehead king. And I'm going to show you that God is at work and in charge of the world right now today. And I'll show it to you all around us today, all right? But first, this story. Uh, Nebuchadnezzar, uh, Daniel 4 is Babylon is the world's superpower at that time, okay? And uh, an amazing, na- I mean, a wicked nation, evil, bad, doing horrible things, but amazing to look at. I mean, Babylon, they had uh, an incredible, uh, I mean, just architecture. They, you know, some of the wonders of the world, the hanging gardens and stuff were built there. And Daniel 4, Babylon is at her apex. I mean, the city of Babylon, its walls, the wealth they had there. They had a very efficient, organized system of government. They had a, 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 an a, you know, incredibly powerful military, lots of wealth. Uh, lots of wisdom and all sorts of stuff. So the amazing nation. They're, they're ruling kind of over the world. They're the world's superpower. And their leader, Nebuchadnezzar, who's ruling them in Daniel 4, he's leading them, and he's leading Babylon at the apex of its power. And so, he, I mean, he just looks around. He sees all this stuff. He sees how he's dressed. He sees how his government is dressed. He sees how things are organized. He sees Babylon conquering the world, and it starts to go to his head a bit. 
uh, wouldn't it with you, right? You start to look at, look at how things are here in Babylon. Look at the other nations of the world. I mean, Nebuchadnezzar starts to think to himself, I'm a pretty amazing leader. I'm pretty brilliant. I mean, look at, look at how I've organized this stuff. Look at all the stuff I've conquered. Look at the wealth, the wisdom we have here. He starts to think, I'm, I'm pretty smart. I'm pretty amazing. Now, of course, we know in Scripture that God opposes the proud. God, of, of, of everything, God can't stand pride. And so God is angry with Nebuchadnezzar. But it's not just because God is petty that he's got to get after Nebuchadnezzar. I mean, yes, that pride is something God wants to deal with. But, it, but because Nebuchadnezzar is sort of the most powerful man in the world, most famous man in the world, and he thinks he's pretty amazing, and the problem is many other people are starting to think it too, and they are worshiping Nebuchadnezzar. They are following Nebuchadnezzar. And, uh, and God says, I can't have people thinking that Nebuchadnezzar is that amazing. I can't have them thinking that he's the one who's really in charge when I'm the one who's in charge. And so he decides we need to humble Nebuchadnezzar so we can show the people of the world who is the real king here. And so, now here's the amazing part. I talked before about a divine council, which we'll develop later in this series as well. It's all over in the Old Testament. This is just one example. But God calls together a council of these powerful angelic beings known as watchers. And uh, they have a discussion. God says, we've got to bring Nebuchadnezzar down. And then he lets the watchers actually have a voice in what they're going to do, which is really amazing to me. Okay? And then they come up with a punishment. This is how we're going to humble Nebuchadnezzar. And I'm going to pick it up here in verse 13. Right here we go. Nebuchadnezzar is the one who wrote chapter 4, by the way. So he's the one. So here it is. I, Nebuchadnezzar, saw in the visions of my head as I lay in bed, and behold, a watcher, that's one of these powerful uh, council members in heaven, a holy one came down from heaven, and he proclaimed aloud and said thus. Okay? And, and now we just skip ahead of verse, and, and this is the, what they're going to do to Nebuchadnezzar to show him who's really the boss, okay? And everybody around him, too. Let him, Nebuchadnezzar, be wet with the dew of heaven. Let his portion be with the beasts in the grass of the earth. Let his mind be changed from a man's, and let a beast's mind be given to him. And let seven periods of time pass over him. So here's the sentence that they came up with. Um, we're going to make Nebuchadnezzar go insane. He's going to leave his palace. He's going to be naked. And he's going to live like an animal in the grass right outside the city of Babylon, Okay? And uh, so, I mean, that's very creative. Um, and I want you to notice here, verse 7, the, verse 17, the sentence is by the decree of the watchers, the decision by the word of the holy ones, okay? And, and again, I just want you to notice here, it does not say this is by the decree of God or the decision of the holy one. It's by the decree of the watchers, the decision of the holy ones. In other words, they got to make a decision in here. This is the amazing thing to me about God. He is a real king. He has a real government. He's the one in charge, but he invites input. Someday in the future, there's going to be human beings on this divine council. That's been the goal all along, okay? But anyway, they get to make a decision. God says, we're going to bring them low, brings them together. They come up with this idea. Yeah, we're going to make him into a lunatic. He's going to live naked out in front of the city in the grass like an ox. Okay, yes, good idea. Now, I want you to see the whole point of this, okay? The whole point of making Nebuchadnezzar go insane in front of everyone, there's one reason. And let's look at the rest of this passage now. To the end, this is the reason. To the end, that the living may know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will and sets over it the lowliest of men. There's one reason. God wants everyone to know. He doesn't just want Nebuchadnezzar to know. He doesn't want just Nebuchadnezzar to know that he's king. He wants the living. He wants everyone to know who is really the one in charge. 
So he says, I'm going to take the most powerful man in the world. Everybody thinks Nebuchadnezzar is amazing. Everybody thinks he's so powerful. Everybody thinks he's the one in charge. And I want to show them one thing, that it's me who rules over the kingdom of men. It's me who gives it to whom I will. And it's me who sets over the kingdoms, the lowliest of men. In other words, God says, I raised Nebuchadnezzar up. Nebuchadnezzar didn't come up to be king of Babylon in the world because he's so amazing and so brilliant. I chose. God looks over the nations of the earth. He looks at all the human beings and he picks out even the lowliest ones and he says, you're going to be the leader, they become the leader. You will not be the leader, they will not become the leader. And he gives it to whomever he will. In each nation, he gives the nations to whomever leader he decides. He's not a figurehead ruler. He's actually the real ruler. You want to see proof of the sovereignty of God today? Just open up any newspaper, open up any magazine, look around at all the people who are in positions of power in the world today, from the lowliest city councils of a smallest town to the highest seats of power in the UN or the most powerful nations in the world, and look at the prime ministers and the presidents, and every single one of them, the Bible doesn't just say it here, it says it all over, but this is just one story, I'm going to finish in a few minutes, but... Every single leader in the entire world of any stature has been raised up to that place by God himself. There isn't a single person in power anywhere in the world today by random chance. No one has ever made it into leadership by random chance. God says, I'm the one who rules over the kingdom of men, not figurehead. I'm the one who gives it to whomever I will, and I will set over it the lowliest of people. He will just pick out someone and say, you will be the leader, and they will become the leader. You will become the leader, and they will become the leader. You will not become the leader, and they're out, or they won't make it. He's actually in charge right now, and he wants not just Nebuchadnezzar to know that, he wants everybody alive to know that. Now, I want to finish this story in just a moment, but before we get there, I just want to say something here. This should be a huge encouragement to the church to pray. This should be a a massive encouragement to the church to pray. I think one of the greatest tragedies, it's almost criminal in the West, is the prayerlessness of the church. And we're all too, we're very, we're not motivated to pray. And we do, we're, too, we're too busy to pray, we're too busy to this, to get together and pray. But when we get together to pray, as we often do here at Southland, I mean every month pretty much we have a prayer summit, and then not to mention the other prayer meetings we have, and prayer ministries here in the prayer room and different things during the rest of the time, but when we get together to pray and ask God to raise up godly leaders in our nation, we're actually talking to the real king in a real throne who actually makes the decisions about who will become the leader in our nations and in the world. When we go and when we pray to God and ask him to raise up godly leaders, we're not praying to the one and it's like, God, I pray you would raise some godly leaders here in Canada. I pray you would do this and that. And God says, oh, Sorry. I'm not going to be ruling until Jesus comes back. No. He's ruling right now. When we pray to God to raise up godly leaders here in Canada, he's not, it's, we're not praying to the God who says, um, sorry guys, uh, you're a democracy. I've got no say in that. You'll have to vote yourselves in some godly leaders. That's not what he says. He says, I want all the living to know that I am the most high right now over all the kings of men. And I give each of the nations to whoever I will at any time. If the church would ever grasp this truth and throw off the shackles of apathy and prayerlessness that literally, when we look at this thing, are almost criminal. And if we would get on our knees and repent and seek God with passion and love and say, God, would you heal our land? He would do it because he's the one that makes the decisions. 
But in the absence of prayer, in the apathy of the church, you know what he does? He's still picking the leaders. Even if we don't pray, he still picks the leaders. But when we don't pray, and when the church is apathetic, you know what he does? He hands our nations over to the leaders we deserve. He hands our nations over to the leaders we deserve. He gives us the leaders that just reflect our moral character. And he says, there you go. He's still the one choosing them. But if we would get on our knees and go after God and love him and be salt in the, in, uh, in, in the country and just pray and seek his face, he would heal our land. Second Chronicles says it. Second Chronicles 7 verse 14. Look at this. If, and I want you to notice the if. If, I've been promising you for a couple years, I'm going to do a message or a series called If Yet. I can hardly wait. But if, so if you don't do this, he won't do it. But if my people who are called by my name humble themselves and pray, and seek my face, and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and heal their land. He will heal their land. That's not an empty promise. He's the one who actually makes the decisions. Now, of course, some of you will be sitting there, and you'll be going back to the philosophical discussion. You'll be saying, if God, if what you're saying is true, that God says which leaders will be in, and which leaders will be out, and which leaders will never make it, if he just chooses exactly who will be a leader in every position all across the world, then what you're saying, Chris, is that things are predetermined. And we right away go back to that philosophical thing that things are predetermined. And it's not true. The fact that God is the one in charge who makes the choices doesn't mean he's already decided what he'll choose. Did you hear me on that one? The fact that he's the one in charge and decides who will get to be the leader, the fact that he has that power and authority and that he does that, doesn't mean he's already decided who it will be. And we can have a voice, just like the watchers. God says, we're going to humble Nebuchadnezzar. He gets the watchers together, and he gets input from them. They come up with a creative idea. This is how we're going to do it. In the same way, he gives human beings a voice in who he will raise up. You know, the best way I can think to, to, to uh, illustrate this for you is the relationship between a parent and child. Okay, LaDonna and I, as you well know, I just did a whole parenting series, but LaDonna and I have three, uh, three little kids, six, three, and one. And, um, and so, but we're in charge. I mean, they're just little kids. And uh, so we're the, we're the ones who have to make all the big decisions, for sure. Uh, for example, on a day off, Monday, tomorrow is, my, is, our, is our day off together. And so on a Monday, LaDonna and I are the ones who have to make the choice of what we're going to do as a family. Because the kids don't have any money, first of all. And they don't have driver's licenses or vehicles. They can't get us. Where, I mean, it's not like Joy and Charlie and Eden can have a little huddle in the morning and say, this is what we're going to do today. Come upstairs. Hey, mom and dad, this is what we're going to do today, whether you like it or not. <laughs> because again, they don't have any money. They don't have driver's licenses. They don't have the means to get themselves where they need to go. They can't do it. In the end, we make the decision because we've got the money. We've got the means of getting to wherever we want to go. But the fact that LaDon and I are the ones that will always make the decision. We're the ones, it ultimately falls on us because we're the ones who have to carry it out doesn't mean that we've predetermined everything that's going to happen, does it? For example, many times on a Monday, we'll just give them, uh, we'll give them options. We'll say, what do you guys want to do, A, B, or C? And they can have a voice in what we do. And they can make a choice. We're still the ones who have to carry it out. We're the ones with the money the, well, and everything to, to make it happen, but they can have a voice. Or other times, that we won't even give them an option, but they can still have a voice because we love them. For example, uh, we might just all hop in a van one day and say, kids, we're going to to McDonald's for lunch, and we're heading there, and, and you know, Joy pipes up from the back. I, you know, Mom and Dad, I'd rather go to uh, Green Tree or MJ's or something like that, right? Oh, hello. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Woo. We turn. We move. Now, I hadn't officially given her an option, 
but I love her and she can have a voice. I'm still the one who has to pay the bill and get us there. I make the choice. But she has a voice in there because I love her. And, and it's the same. Now, of course, there are some times when they'll have a, try to have a voice in something and it's just no, because I know better. And other times it's just no, because I just made up my decision and it, I just want to do what I want to do, right? So sometimes it's no. Okay, and same with God. He knows better. Sometimes he's got something determined that he is going to do. But many times they have a voice because I love them. And it's the same with prayer and us and the sovereignty of God. The sovereignty of God does not mean he's predetermined everything. What it means is he is actually in charge. Real king, real throne, actually making the decisions today of who will be leader and who will not. And we can go to him in prayer and influence those decisions, have a voice in those decisions. That should be a massive encouragement to us for prayer. But of course, I know that someone else might still be thinking, and you go back to this free will thing, and you think, well, if Nebuchadnezzar was just raised up to where he was, there's no free will. If all the leaders in the world today get just raised up to where they are, and another person was not raised up, then there's no free will. And I want you to notice again that this has nothing to do with free will. God raised Nebuchadnezzar up to be a leader. But it was Nebuchadnezzar's choice once he was in that position of leadership whether he would be good with that position or whether he would do evil. Do you see that? God chooses who's going to be the leader. There's no question about it. God puts us in the positions of power that we end up in. He puts us in the places, whether low or high or medium or higher or whatever. He puts each of us in a place that he made us for and that he decrees that we will be. But then it is our job, our choice comes in, will we be evil there or will we be good? Will we steward that position that he gave us for him or will we not steward it for him? And so if we read in the rest of the story now about King Nebuchadnezzar, you're going to see the sovereignty of God and the free will of Nebuchadnezzar, how they mesh together. Because God gives Nebuchadnezzar some time to repent. Nebuchadnezzar doesn't repent, so God punishes him and then Nebuchadnezzar changes his mind. Okay? And so let's read the rest of the story. Verse 28. All this came upon King Nebuchadnezzar. At the end of 12 months, so he's it's a year after the watcher first came and talked to him, Nebuchadnezzar was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon, and the king answered and said, Is not this great Babylon, which I have built by my mighty power, as a royal residence and for the glory of my majesty? Now look at this. While the words were still in the king's mouth. You're going to see some sovereignty of God here. While the words were still in the king's mouth, there fell a voice from heaven. O King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is spoken, the kingdom has departed from you, and you shall be driven from among men, and your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field, and you shall be made to eat grass like an ox, and seven periods of time, seven years shall pass over you, until, what is, what does he have, what's the lesson he has to learn? Until you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. Immediately, I want you to notice that word, immediately the word was fulfilled against Nebuchadnezzar. This is the sovereignty of God. Everybody thinks Nebuchadnezzar is the king. Who's going to be able to topple Nebuchadnezzar? It'll take years of intrigue and different things. And, and you know, big, how are we going to get him down? And God just says, I'm the real king. And he snaps his finger. And in one moment, Nebuchadnezzar goes from being the most powerful man in the world to being insane and living outside the city walls. And everybody goes, oh. Oh, were we just about to worship that guy yesterday? Yeah, he's got long nails and a hairy back and body and just, okay? Seven years, and God just snapped. There it is. He's king, he's not king. God says, I give and I take away. I'm the one in charge. Nebuchadnezzar was never anything more than a servant to the Most High. Never. 
He did not get to where he was because he was brilliant, and neither have any of us gone to where we are because we're so brilliant. Whether you believe in God or not doesn't matter. Well, it'll matter to you where you end up. But it doesn't matter to him as to whether you're going to be, he just raises you up and puts you there. And someday you'll find out he put you there. Did you steward it for him or did you not? But immediately the word was fulfilled against Nebuchadnezzar and he goes out and, well, let's just keep reading here. Graphic detail. Very uh, creative disciplinary measures here by God. He was driven from among men and ate grass like an ox and his body was wet with the dew of heaven till his hair grew as long as eagle's feathers and his nails were like bird's claws. At the end of the days, now look at this. Seven years it takes to get this through Nebuchadnezzar's head. Seven years of living like an animal, an absolute lunatic in the grass of the field. And, uh, but at the end of the seven years, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven and my reason returned to me. And I blessed the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever for his dominion. Notice Nebuchadnezzar finally realizes uh, I was never the one in charge. He was always the one in charge. I had an illusion of being in charge. Many of us are living under the illusion that we are in charge of our lives. And someday that illusion will be shattered. Will it be shattered for good because you, you served God in that position? Or will it be shattered for bad that you lived in pride and resisted him? But someday all of us will have our illusions shattered and we will see just like Nebuchadnezzar that his dominion is an everlasting dominion and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. In other words, he is in charge right now. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing and he does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth and none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? Now I want you to see what happens next. Now this is amazing, okay? We've only seen, this story has two examples of the sovereignty of God. We've only seen one. He snapped his finger and the most powerful man in the world became a lunatic living out in the grass like an animal, okay? Now there's an even better example of the sovereignty of God because watch what he does next. He's going to snap his fingers now and do it in reverse, okay? At the same time, my reason returned to me and for the glory of my kingdom, my majesty and splendor returned to me. Now think about this. Think about what an act of God this takes. First of all, it takes an amazing act of God to snap your fingers and take the king of the world and in one moment put him out in the field like, a, like an animal, okay? But now think about this. This guy's been living like a, a lunatic, grossing everybody out for seven years, and everybody's like, oh, okay, whoo, King Nebuchadnezzar, stay away, right? And he lives like that for seven years. Then God snaps his finger again, and you know what they do? The thought comes into their head, we should make that lunatic our king again. God just makes the puppets dance. He says, and now you'll be king again. Oh, let's go find Harry Man out in the field. He's living like an ox. Be our king again. Look what they do here. My counselors and my Lord sought me, and I was established in my kingdom, and still more greatness was added to me. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the king of heaven. For all his works are right, and his ways are just, and those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. He is not a figurehead ruler. And the sovereignty of God is not a philosophical discussion about free will. All it is, is is coming to the realization that God is actually king right now from a real throne and he's actually ruling over the earth right now. And one of the places we see it is he decides who gets to be the leader and for how long and who gets to be the next one and who doesn't get to be. And we as Christians... Until we begin to get a revelation of this sovereignty, we will not be able to relate to God properly because we won't be able to walk in humility. This is what humility is, coming into an understanding of the fact that he is actually in charge. But what happens is we look in a mirror and we look at our accomplishments. Wow. Look at, look at my degrees. Look at my education. Look at, 
Look at, you know, look at what an amazing, you know, look at my accomplishments. Look at what an amazing singer I am. I mean, not, not me, obviously. But, uh, I mean, you might think this, right? Look at the stuff I've written. Look at the stuff I've designed. Look at the money I've made. Look at the business I've made. Look at, I just built this thing up from scratch. All the people I employ and all the, all the wealth I've created. Look at the ministry I've started. And look at the amount of ministry and the good I've done for God. And we think, look at the stuff I've done. And we don't take the warning. Nebuchadnezzar took him seven years to learn the lesson that he hadn't done it. God had raised him up. That's why the opposite of pride is gratitude. The only appropriate response, attitude, and posture of a believer towards God is one of gratitude. Not look what I've done, but thank you, God, that I get to live. Thank you, God, that you've actually just made me who I am, raised me up to use me. Thank you that you would want to use me. It's pure gratitude. Thank you for what you've done in me. I want to show you an amazing prayer in the Bible. The opposite of pride is gratitude. King David was one of the most amazing leaders in history. Okay? He had some moral failings, but he was an amazing leader. I mean, he took this, this kind of fractured bunch of tribes, the nation of Israel, and forged it into a powerful nation with a lot of wealth. He built up the city of Jerusalem. He, he built many things. He was great in battle. He was an amazing musician. He wrote psalms. Uh, King David was an amazing leader. And if anyone would have had reason to be proud of his accomplishments, I mean, King David is, is a guy. I want you to see the prayer that he prays to God shortly before his death. Okay? I want you to see how rooted in the sovereignty of God this thing is. Yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty for all that is in the heavens and in the earth is yours. Yours is the kingdom, O Lord, and you are exalted as head above all. Both riches and honor come from you. David was very wealthy when he died. But he didn't say, look at what an amazing leader I am. Both riches and honor come from you. He's the one that makes the decisions of whether you get to be rich or not, or whether you get to make it or not, or whether you become successful or not. No matter how hard you work, and we have to work, and that's part of character, and that's part of how God uses us. But you can never take pride for it, because in the end, he decides whether you make it or not. Both riches and honor come from you, and you rule over all. In your hand are power and might, and in your hand it is to make great and give strength to all. God decides who gets to become great. And now, the only appropriate response to this revelation is, and now we thank you, our God, and praise your glorious name. Everything you are and everything you have is straight from the king who is ruling over the earth right now. Everything you are and everything you have is from him. Who gave you your talents anyway? Who gave them to you? Were you in the womb and you had a little computer there and you designed yourself? I'm going to have this talent and this ability and this personality. No. He thought you up from scratch and made you good at the things you're good at. Who gave you then on top of that, who gave you the opportunities? I mean, if you would have been born in the third world, you wouldn't be in university today or an engineer or some of those things. You wouldn't be that. So who gave you the opportunity? Who gave you, who put people in your path? No matter how much you think you made yourself who you are today, someone helped you along the way. Someone taught you to read. Someone fed you. Someone came along and believed in you or borrowed you some money or whatever it is. You've had a whole bunch of people. You did not make it on your own. Who put those people there? God is ruling in heaven right now and he decided you would be as successful as you are today. 
everything you are and everything you have are from him. Both riches and honor come from you, and you rule over all. And so the only appropriate response to God is, thank you. Now, of course, I know some people don't even really like this revelation. They think they don't like it. God raises up some and doesn't raise up others. I mean, that's not fair. We have this very democratic sense of fairness. And uh, that's not fair. That's not right. We'd rather believe that we, had, that we did it. And, and we think, what right does God have to choose which nation will be powerful and which one will be brought low? What right does God have to raise up one leader and not another? What right does he have? So let me finish this message with one final point, and let me tell you why God can do this. Why is it right? Why does God, where did God get the right to raise up some and not others? Here's where it comes from. God owns everything. God owns everything. He made it all. He owns it all. Therefore, he can do with it whatever he likes. This is the root of God's sovereignty. He made it all. It's all his. Psalm chapter 50, verses 10 to 12. God says this, For every beast of the forest is mine, the cattle on a thousand hills. I know all the birds of the hills, and all that moves in the field is mine. If I were hungry, I would not tell you, for the world and all its fullness are mine. God owes nobody anything. He made everything. It's his. He can decide, I want to do this with it. I want to do that with that. And I want to raise this person up. I don't want to raise this person up. When you get a revelation of the sovereignty of God, you come to him and you say, thank you that you're good. The fact that he has so much power would corrupt. If any of us had that kind of power, there would be corruption. When you see what kind of power God has, you come and you say, thank you, God, that you're kind. Thank you that you're good in that. But nobody can tell him that he can't do something because it's all his. Jeremiah 27, verses 4 to 7 says this, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, It is I who by my great power and my outstretched arm have made the earth with the men and animals that are on the earth. He made it all. And I give it to whomever it seems right to me. God says, I will give this piece of land and these boundaries to this nation for this amount of time, and then I'll take it away and I'll give this nation to it, and I'll give this land to this nation. And he does all of this. The nations have the amount of land that they have because God gave it to them or take it away from them. It's his. And we say, that's not fair. Part of following God is, first of all, coming to grips with the fact that he is the one in charge. He is good in his power and sovereignty. He is good and he is kind and he is just. But it's his. And look what it says in the rest of this passage. Sovereignty of God. Jeremiah was writing during the time of Nebuchadnezzar as well. So here we see Nebuchadnezzar pop up again. Now I have given all these lands into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar. If you would have talked to any of the contemporaries of Nebuchadnezzar and said, how did Nebuchadnezzar get his land? They would have said, well, he's an amazing military leader. He conquered these lands. And, but if you see what's actually happening in the universe, you realize Nebuchadnezzar didn't conquer those lands. That was just the means God used to give it to Nebuchadnezzar. He gave it to him. It's a gift. And everything you have from God is a gift as well. Now I have given all these lands into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, my servant, and I have given him also the beasts of the field to serve him. All the nations shall serve him and his son and his grandson until the time of his own land comes. Then, in the future, many nations and great kings shall make him their slave. So God says in his sovereignty, I'm going to give Babylon this land for three generations, and after that, I'm going to take it away. That's his right as king. 
And no one can say to God, you're not allowed to do that or you have no right to do that because God doesn't owe us anything. Job 41 verse 11 says this. God says, ask Job a question. Who has given to me that I should repay him? Who has given to me, God says, who has given to me that I owe them something? Whatever is in, under the whole heaven is mine. The only thing God is bound by is his own goodness. That's the only thing God's bound by. The fact, and again, I worship him. When you see how much power God has, I worship him and I say, thank you, God, that you're kind and loving and good. The only thing he's bound by is his own goodness, which is, brings us to the, one of the greatest statements of the sovereignty of God in all the scriptures. Psalm 135, verse 6 says this, whatever the Lord pleases he does. That's the ultimate statement of the sovereignty of God. God never thinks in his head of something he wishes he could do. If he wants to do it, he does it. Whatever the Lord pleases, he does because he's the one who's in charge. He has no obligations to anyone else. Whatever the Lord pleases, he does. Which brings us to Psalm 24, verse 1. God does not just own all the things in the world, he owns the people too. The earth is the Lord's and all it contains, the world and those who dwell in it. God does not just own the what's in this world, he owns the who. God owns every single human being that has ever lived. He owns you, he owns me, he owns all of us because he made us. And very few of us ever stop to think about this. God owns us. And this is why, again, and I'm going to finish with one last passage here, is, for, is James 1, 16 to 17. The only appropriate posture of a believer to God is thank you because he owes you nothing. Every good thing in your life is a result of God's charity. He gave it to you because he loves you. Every day, you can get up in the morning and you can say, thank you, Lord, that I get to live another day. Thank you, Lord, that I get to experience love another day. Thank you that I get to experience life another day. Thank you that I get to experience purpose and work. And some of these things that we never think about and we just take for granted, every day you can be thankful that you get to be alive and that you get to do something that is meaningful and that you get to experience this thing of love and that you get to experience this emotion of joy. All of these things are pure charity from him to you. He owes you nothing. He owns us. We are his property. James 1, 16 to 17 says this, Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Many people in the West are deceived because they've lost sight of the sovereignty of God. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good gift and every perfect gift. Okay? So he just wants to make sure we have it there. Every good gift and every perfect gift too is from above, coming down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Let's bow our heads and worship the King who is over all. Father, we acknowledge that you are king over the universe. You are not a figurehead king. You are actually in charge. And we worship you, Father. We thank you that we get to be here today. We thank you that you have given us breath to live another day. We thank you that you have given us families. We thank you that we have gotten to experience joy and love and life during our short time here on the earth. And Jesus, I just pray for a revelation to pierce our hearts of your awesome sovereignty. And out of that, Lord, I pray that an appropriate sense of gratitude and the fear of the Lord would take us as a church body to new levels of walking with you. In your name we pray, amen.